This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City. It's the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, linguist and journalist Gaston Doran discusses his new book, Blingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. Then PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers introduces some exciting recent books for kids. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So we we I sound mean, all excited, yeah, but there's well, there's not actually a whole lot. There's not, there's <laughs> out, not a out lot there. Um, on the on the fiction list, I've just got a few books to talk about. Um, at number seven is our first mm. new book on the list, which is Ashley Bell by Dean Koontz. We don't have. A review of this, but I gotta share some of the promotional copy because <laughs> it's it's just too good. Some publicist really had a field day writing it. It is the must-read thriller of the year, featuring the most exhilarating heroine in memory and a sophisticated, endlessly ingenious, brilliantly paced narrative through dark territory and deep mystery. This is a new milestone in literary suspense and a major new breakout book from the long-acclaimed master. You do not see jacket copy like that every day. (laughs) Well, and you had mentioned Dean Koontz has been writing for for quite some time. I was a big fan of his stuff back when I was a teenager, and and there were, you know, heaps of his books uh, around even then. Right, right, yeah. And, I mean, we're talking back in the day when you got those mass market paperbacks off the revolving rack at the drugstore. Yeah. So... To call this a breakout book redefines the term. Anyway, yeah. it's uh, what what more can I say about it? Really, it's um, it's a book about a 22 year old woman who is supposedly dying and then impossibly cured, and uh, she ends up searching for someone named Ashley Bell and wandering around Southern California, which is Kuntz's frequent right. million. Right. So um, it's the first book in a series, and. Uh, I I mean I don't, I don't I don't know they've taken all of my words away and it, they they say this is unprecedented in scope and infinite in heart I I can't I can't compete. So. Well, uh, and it's number 7. <laughs> and so. it's number 7 on the <laughs> okay, PW bestseller list. So, um certainly many people found that jacket copy extremely convincing. Great. Um down at number 23 is Secret Sisters by Jane Ann Krentz. We gave this a starred review. Um she also writes as Jane Castle and as Amanda Quick, extremely prolific author and um a bestseller I think under all of her pseudonyms, which is quite an accomplishment. Great. This one is a romantic thriller as many of the books under the Jane Ann Krentz name are. Um, and a hotel heiress returns from Arizona to the spooky abandoned Aurora Point Hotel uh, in Washington State to find the caretaker dying from a head wound and the assailant stalking her. And there's um, a lot of deep, dark, thrilling stuff going on. Uh, but the the important part is that she brings in a former FBI consultant and the head of her hotel security team. And together they pursue their own investigation, though Jack has a secret of his own. 
and there's building sexual and romantic tension between the protagonists as the danger increases. We say Krentz scores another winner with complex characters and seamless plotting. Great. So that's at number 23. Definitely recommended for all those romantic thriller fans out there. And then down at number 47, I just wanted to note A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. Uh, this is after her 2013 debut novel was The People in the Trees, which you might have heard of. Yeah. Um, we call this book an epic American tragedy. Um, we say that uh, this is a novel that values the everyday over the extraordinary, uh, the push and pull of human relationships, and the book's effect is cumulative. So we follow four college friends over the course of their entire lives, their entire careers, and uh you know, three of them have largely ordinary lives, but one has horrific trauma in his past, and his inner demons are central to the story. Wow. So by the time the characters reach their 50s and the story arrives at its moving conclusion, readers will be attached and find these people very hard to forget. So um, that's, a, that's a significant book to note out there. And uh, it, I had the release date marked down here as uh, March of... 2015. Mm. So it's interesting to see it back on the bestseller list here at right. the end of the year. Um, it may have just gotten a little bit of a holiday shopping boost. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder if that was one of the books as a couple of mine on nonfiction that have been on some of these end of the year lists, ah, uh, maybe. such as the times or, or wherever. Um, and, and two books that in over nonfiction, uh, one is H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Uh, we say this is an elegant synthesis of memoir and literary sleuthing. Um, she's an English academic finds the training of young Goshawk helps her through her grief over the death of her father. Uh, and this was on, uh, this came out earlier in the year and has been on uh, a few of these end of the year roundups. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's, and not only that, but also, uh, a nomination for some awards. So, so that's re so that's at number 32 and another book, uh, at 34, Dead Awake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania by Eric Larson. This is everything uh, uh, he's been writing has been getting, you know, has been hitting the bestseller list. And this is about the uh, the passenger liner, the, uh, the the Lusitania. And those are the two books on the nonfiction that, that uh, seem to have a resurgence. And then we have How Not to Die by Michael Grieger. And this is Discover the Food Scientifically Proven to Prevent and Reverse uh, Disease. Some of the major 15 diseases. He includes uh, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. We see in a review that evidence-based guide unpacks information useful to carnivores, vegetarians, and vegans alike, making a strong case for the healing power of food. So we, we have that uh, at number 11. And then dipping down a little bit further, almost to the end, number 45, Franklin Barbecue by Aaron Franklin. Uh, and, and this is a meat-smoking manifesto from the proprietor of Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. He writes that barbecue doesn't operate with absolutes of temperature, time, and measurement. So he spends most of this book exploring the general mechanics and intangibles behind uh, creating, say, a delicious brisket. In the end, we say, when finally the brisket recipe is proffered late in the book, it's a 13-page affair, complete with step-by-step -step instructions and photos. As Franklin says, and we end our review of this, brisket is simply a big, dumb piece of meat. So, anyway, <laughs> that's what we have on the nonfiction. Well, I think the only other thing of note on the, the fiction list uh, as we're coming to the end of the year is some of the 
the books that were big hits early in the year are still sticking around. Um, see, The Girl on the Train has been on for 48 weeks now. Wow. It's about to drop off and uh, become a backlist title. And at 45 weeks, we have Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale. And at 22 weeks is Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman. And those have all seen recent bumps uh, in their sales numbers. Mm. But they're staying pretty much on the same place on the list because even uh, a 40% uptick in in sales uh, is is kind of universal right. this time of year pretty yeah. much anything that's on the bestseller list is probably going to stay there as its bestseller status right. means that it sells more books on those big bookstore displays where you go when you're desperate to find someone a christmas present yes exactly so that's that's what we've got for the list i don't expect a lot of excitement over the last couple of weeks of the year uh, but uh, hopefully we'll see some big new titles coming out in January. Exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gaston Doran tells us about Europe's dozens of languages. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Gaston Dorn on the line. His new book is Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. Hello, Gaston. So glad you could join us. It's my pleasure. So you give a tour of Europe in 60 languages in this book. I, I can only think of a handful of European languages, but tell us about some of the more obscure ones. Ah, as a matter of fact, there are many more than 60, but I will not go into those. <laughs> uh, some of the ex obscure ones are, for instance, uh, Frisian. Well, that's not obscure in the Netherlands where it's spoken, but it's definitely obscure elsewhere. There is Gagauz, which is my wife's personal favorite, which is spoken in Moldova. Uh, there is, for instance, Sorbian, spoken in a, a, a little corner of Germany, which is a Slavic language. And there is Monegasque, which is practically, which, which is only a hundred speakers or so, but it's a compulsory subject in schools in, in Monaco. You begin the book with Proto-Indo-European. So tell us a little bit about what that is for those in, in our audience who haven't studied linguistics or have forgotten all those college classes. I wouldn't expect anyone to, to remember Proto-Indo-European, um, but it is the language uh, from which most European languages and quite a few others descend. So it's not a language that is spoken nowadays. It was spoken like probably 6,000 years ago or even longer, according to some people. Uh, it was probably spoken in what's now Ukraine. But if you want to hear what it was like, and you don't want to uh, talk to a, uh, to a specialist, but you just want to hear it in the street, you could go to Lithuania because, well, obviously they speak Lithuanian in Lithuania and not Proto-Indo-European, but of all the living Indo-European languages, of which there are hundreds, this is the one that is closest to the original. So it's not a spitting image. It's certainly different, but it's closest. That's very interesting. Um, why do you think that that language has stayed the closest to its roots while other European languages have diversified further? Uh, well, that's anyone's guess, except, well, languages that are very much in contact with the outside world, such as English. I mean, English is the prime example of that, but also Dutch or French or German. I mean, those languages uh, tend to change a lot. Now, Lithuanian has definitely been in contact with other languages, such as Russian and Polish. So this is not the complete explanation, but 
Lithuanian has definitely been less in contact with the outside world than uh, English or Spanish or the other ones I mentioned. So that's part of the explanation. And partly it's just, well, who knows? Some languages change more than others. There are not always clear reasons for it. So could you give us, starting with the Proto-Indian, you've already talked a little bit about that, uh, the Proto-Indo-European. Can you give us a maybe a linguistic overview of Europe? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, as I said, most of Europe speaks some sort of Indo-European. There are very few exceptions, such as Finnish and Estonian and Hungarian. Those are the major exceptions. Turkish is another one, and Basque, famous Basque. Um, the languages that are Proto-Indo-European, so all the rest, are mostly belong mostly to three groups, which have sort of familiar names, I'm sure. Germanic, which is like English and German and Dutch and Scandinavian languages. And there is Romance, like uh, Italian and French and Spanish and some others. And there's the Slavic languages, in, mostly in the East, such as uh, Russian and Polish and Serbo-Croatian. And there are some smaller, let's say, some, some, uh, some that are on their own, like Greek and Albanian. I think a lot of English speakers would be surprised to hear English char characterized as a Germanic language. Um, when I when I was taking linguistics classes many years ago, that was definitely a thing that startled me because we don't really see English's similarities to German. Uh, but it definitely is, we just sort of know that it's different from the Romance languages, for example. Are, are there other um, sort of big questions that you get a lot about languages and language families and how these languages all fit together? Um, the reason why English is so different is that it has been influenced very strongly by, by French, and especially in the 11th, 12th, uh, 13th centuries, and later on by Latin, uh, unlike German and, and Dutch and Scandinavian languages, which have not been influenced all that much. They have been, but not all that much. Mm -hmm. So, yes, English is very much an outlier within the Germanic family. Um, but I'm not quite sure what was your question then. Um, I guess my question is, what other things do you come up with that sort of reliably surprise your audience? Like if, if you're oh, asked to yeah. give some exciting facts about European languages, uh, what else catches people off guard? Well, one thing is that the languages spoken in the southeast of Europe, in the Balkans, um, are not related, uh, with some exceptions, but they, they belong to very many different families. And still, there are quite similar in many ways, because they have been living together, so to speak, for so long, for so many centuries. And there have been so many bilingual people throughout those centuries that they have... Um, They've sort of converged, you might say. Um, I mean, the words are still different, but the grammars and the even the pronunciation have uh, uh, grown in this, have developed into the same the same direction. So they're quite are quite similar now. The same is true, by the way, for Hungarian, which is not even in the European, but which in the course of over a thousand years has um, adopted quite a few Indo-European um, uh, features. Uh, and even the Hungarians are usually not aware of that, but linguists can tell and they can point out this is Indo-European and that's Indo-European. Hungarians didn't talk like that a thousand years ago. So you're a linguist and a journalist, and, and you also created an app, uh, which is called the Language Lover's Guide to Europe. Tell us about that app and how it works. Ah, the app. Um, well, I'm very happy you... You asked me that question. Um, the app is a, an aid uh, um, to do, uh, when you're traveling, what 
um, I personally always like to do when, I, when I'm traveling, namely um, see and hear the best linguistic um, attractions or, or interesting things that you can find in that particular country where you are. Uh, I mean, to me, and I'm, I'm sure to many people, languages are one of the, are part of the cultural heritage of the country where you are, you know, holidaying or whatever. And uh, when you only have your guidebook or you don't even have that, you will probably miss many interesting linguistic things, uh, uh, places of interest in that country. I mean, there are museums, there are bilingual areas, there are certain extremely interesting bookshops and much, much more. And I have collected like, I'm not sure, 475 or so of those um, places to visit throughout Europe, really from the Canary Islands to uh, uh, into the east of Russia, of European Russia, and especially the tourist countries like um, Britain, France, Italy, Germany. And well, when I go there, I nowadays use my own app, and I've heard from other people that I also do that. So what are some of your uh, favorite sites to point people to? When you say linguistic attractions, what would that consist of? I'm, I'm imagining statues of famous linguists, but maybe that's not where you're going with this. There are a few of those in the in the uh, app as well. But the main, the, two of the best things, I think, are the museums and the bilingual areas. Uh, there are bilingual areas that you wouldn't expect, actually like the ones I mentioned earlier on, where they speak Frisian in the Netherlands, where they speak Sorbian in Germany. There are many, many uh, minority languages in Italy that people wouldn't know, like Albanian and Greek and even Croatian and others. Uh, but also there are specific linguistic museums in, in several countries, like Germany, like Hungary. There is a, an Esperanto, there are several Esperanto museums uh, throughout Europe. Uh, there are museums like for instance, in Rome, I visited one in Rome a couple of weeks ago, where you can see the development of, of a writing, of, of Roman writing through the ages, from the 8th century uh, BC until the 5th or 6th century uh, uh, AD. And there's also a very beautiful museum of the script in, in, in France, which I'm really looking forward to visit one day. I hope I will go there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot here. So say I'm traveling to Galway City, which I know uh, the, the, where where English is spoken, but also Gaelic. What uh, what what might I find on this app for Galway City in Ireland? Um, I remember that it is possible to make an excursion there, a trip uh, to a um, sort of Gaelic museum, including several linguistic um, uh, points of interest, and uh, obviously just traveling to that, uh, through the villages around um, the, the city, not so much the city itself, I think, but the villages around, you will hear Gaelic, which is really a rarity nowadays in, in Ireland. And um, I think that if you show an interest and respect, that people will be willing to talk about it. I mean, they all speak English, so they can communicate with you and tell you about their Gaelic if you ask them, if you ask them nicely, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you ask them nicely in English, I'm I'm guessing because uh, the the times I've tried to speak Gaelic, um, that accent is really not like anything that I've ever encountered as an American. Uh, so if you, you're you've heard Gaelic, or are you just? Uh, oh no, I I studied it actually for a year or so, and um, I I by the end of it, I could more or less write a sentence, and I couldn't say it in any recognizable. Way. It's really the, thing, the funny thing is that the uh, 
the Irish people who speak Gaelic as a second language because they learned it in school um, speak it so differently from the first language speakers in, in the west of the country, in the Gaeltacht, mm-hmm. that they have, apparently they have uh, trouble understanding each other and the the first language speakers generally dislike the way the second language speakers pronounce uh, the language and what they do to the grammar, which, which, I mean, the grammar is very complicated and apparently the second language speakers don't get it right. I, uh, I also studied Russian at Hunter College here in New York City, and most of my classmates were uh, the descendants of Russian immigrants who'd grown up speaking Russian in immigrant communities but couldn't read or write the Cyrillic alphabet. And it turned out that their grammar was quite different from what the teacher from Odessa was expecting, and they would get into these endless arguments you know, um, between the, the native speakers and the, the immigrant speakers. It's really? it's so interesting how language changes um, from Actually, if, one space to another. Yeah, the, the chapter on Dutch, Dutch is my uh, my own first language or second language, you might say, but the language that I use in my daily life here in the Netherlands. And the grammar of our language, of, of Dutch, has been changing over the last decades, and many people are not even aware that the way they speak is different from the way they think they ought to write. So... Um, these changes in grammar very often go fly underneath the radar or under the radar, how do you put that? Um, they are not observed by the common speakers. They will be observed by linguists. And then at some point, well, uh, they will tell the rest of the world and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what other interesting interactions have you observed between these small communities of people who grew up speaking um, for example, Gaelic or Frisian, and the the broader communities around them. Um, do you have anything in mind, or is this an open question? No, it's a totally it's a totally open <laughs> question. I mean, obviously, this is an area that I've yeah. I've dabbled in a little, but I don't I don't know a lot, and I'm so I'm just very curious. Yeah, a good example um, or a good an interesting case is Luxembourgish. Um, Luxembourg, of course, is one of the smaller nations of Europe, actually. It's it's, um, it's it's very small. I think it's smaller than the smallest American state. Um, and it has a language of its own called Luxembourgish, which is really very close to um, German. But um, the official languages of Luxembourg are French and German. I think mostly French, because that's what is used in legislation. German is used a lot too, in uh, for instance, in newspaper and in newspapers and in other uh, media. And um, what they do is that they teach children first Luxembourgish, so that they do their uh, uh, reading and writing in uh, Luxembourgish up to the age of ten or so. Then they switch to uh, German, which is easy because it's not all that different, but it is definitely a different language. And then at some age, you can't remember which the students switch to French. So in the end, all practically all Luxembourgers are trilingual. So that's one way of dealing with multilingualism. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Gaston Doran, who's the author of Lingo and also the creator of the Language Lover's Guide to Europe app, which we touched on briefly. Did this book come out of that app or did something else inspire it? Um, no, it's not as if the book came out of the app. It's rather the other way around because the um, the first version of the book, that is the Dutch language edition, um, was published in 2012. Um, and it was then translated and reworked, uh, overhauled uh, to be published in English. Uh, what inspired it? Um, actually, I had written a book about languages like 15 years ago. And in the meantime, I'd been doing a lot of singer-songwriting and comedy. Um, and at some point, I just discovered that I was better at writing books than at uh, singing and songwriting and doing comedy. But having been on stages throughout the country, I had developed a bit of a feel for how you can um, get your information across in a more, somewhat more entertaining way, which is not to say that my first book was boring, but this one is definitely... <laughs> more entertaining. Um, so I've tried to find this mix of uh, solid linguistic information, but in a in a uh, dressed, clad in, um, in in nice stories. So tell us a little bit um, about one of your your favorite stories. I love this idea of the serious information dressed up in this sort of entertaining guise. Ah, yeah. Um, a chapter that I particularly like is the one about French. Uh, because what I want to tell the reader is how French has been very strongly influenced by Latin, not only in the sense that French is, so to speak, the direct descendant of Latin, Latin but also in the course of the centuries, um, ever since the early days, French has um, gone back to Latin to borrow and to look how they should spell things um, and to, um, to, to guide their grammar. So I think that is a bit, <laughs> a bit unhealthy, so to speak. So that's <laughs> why I'm saying that uh, in the book, that French has a, um, a mother fixation. <laughs> Latin being the mother, obviously, and French, the son, uh, François, which is actually a man's name in, uh, in French, um, Francois not being as independent as maybe he should be uh, after 15 centuries. <laughs> so you probably get this question a lot, but let's talk about the difference between language and dialect, especially if we're talking about various uh, various countries uh, in Europe. I discussed that issue in the chapter on on, on Scots and Frisian, so not uh, not Gaelic, not Scottish Gaelic, but uh, the Scots that is more similar to English. And Frisian, which is close to Dutch, because some people will argue that these are dialects and other people will argue that these are full, full fledged languages. Now, only recently did I realize we should really do away with this word language or use it in a very, uh, vague way only, because what we really want to talk about is dialects and standard languages. Now, standard languages are languages that have dictionaries and that have grammars where you can look up how you should you know, uh, decline the verbs and, and all of that. Uh, no, sorry, you don't decline verbs, you decline nouns. Mm. But um, standard languages are languages like English and Spanish and uh, Swedish and Russian and all of those, and including Frisian, uh, frankly. Um, on the other hand, dialects do not have these standards. I mean, for instance, take the case of my own mother tongue. I mean, 
I'm from the south of the Netherlands where we speak a dialect or a regional language, if you like, called Limburgish. But in my village, we speak slightly differently from the next village. And if you travel 10 kilometers to the west, it really sounds pretty different again. Now, I can still talk to those people, but I can never say to them or they can never say to me, that's not right what you're saying. That's incorrect because we both have our own practically our own individual standards. So really those are dialects, you might say, which is not to say that they're any, uh, that they're inferior or anything. I mean, both dialects and standard languages are both languages in the sense of, you know, systems of communication in which you can say practically anything. Um, but there is that difference. My family's from Calabria, Italy, and, and it's the same there with the dialects that, that might range from one mountaintop to another, uh, where uh, they'll resort to standard Italian in order to communicate. But they also have their, uh, I, I think you had mentioned, there's still some Greek spoken there and the Arboresh, uh, uh language. Right. Yes, yeah, the uh, a variety of Albanian. That's right, correct. exactly, exactly. So, so I and I had thought that this might have been just common to Southern Italy, but apparently, where you're from, it's it's the same as far as the uh, 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 comprehension of of dialects or languages. Uh, it is it's similar in in huge parts of Europe. I think actually, uh, in the United States are different, of course, in that English only arrived there say five centuries ago, so it hasn't had time to. Um, uh, grow apart all that dramatically. Obviously, there are dialects or accents, let's say, in the United States, but I think everybody can understand each other. Uh, all Americans whose mother tongue is English can easily understand each other, to, to my knowledge. Correct. In Europe, that's different. I mean, in uh, even in Britain, I've, I I remember being in um, it was either Manchester or Birmingham, I'm not, not sure which, and I had really trouble understanding, um, for instance, a barkeeper there who said something to me. Uh, English, I mean, British English dialects are really much more uh, varied, much more different from each other than the English dialects in the United States. And the same is true in, or was true in, in Denmark and France and still is true in Italy and, and Slovenia and Germany and Holland, etc. So you've clearly traveled around a whole lot in Europe. Uh, is this something that you generally enjoy doing, just roaming from place to place and listening to people? Uh, is what, what led you to pursue that instead of maybe more conventional academic approaches to <laughs> linguistics? Right. Um, I do enjoy traveling in Europe, uh, and I do. I, I am always on the lookout for especially for work, for, for writing in, in foreign languages. But frankly, what has inspired me most to, um, uh, to, to analyze all these, how people talk and how they write, etc., are two things that you might not expect. One is that, um, uh, I am very bad with my hands. I'm on thumbs, as they say. And therefore, as a kid, I was really unable to do what other boys and other kids would do, namely take things apart, you know, alarm clocks and watches and stuff like that, and put them back together or, or uh, engines. I, I couldn't. I was just too clumsy for that. So I started analyzing what I had in my head, which was languages, because as I've mentioned already, um, we had this regional language, we had the national language, and I happened to live close to the German border and also to the border of the French language area. My father was a French teacher, moreover. And of course, I heard a lot of, a lot of English on television, in, uh, in films, in, in, on TV, uh, uh, in, in music. 
So I had sort of all this uh, raw material on which I could work and which did not require that I would be very good with my hands. I think that's how it started. Hmm. So um, do you end up uh, learning other writing systems too, or does that sort of fall under the same manual dexterity? <laughs> um, well, I, my handwriting in, in our own script, in, in Latin, uh, Latin alphabet, is so horrible that I wouldn't even try to write in a different alphabet. I have tried... I have learned to, to read in, in different alphabets, though, which is not to say that I read any of those languages, but I, I am now able to, to read the Russian alphabet. I actually, there is a chapter in the book which explains how easy that is. Mm -hmm. uh, I also know how to learn the Greek, uh, to read the Greek letters, which is also very easy if you have had some maths and physics uh, in college. And I've recently learned, um, or I am learning, I should say, the Arabic alphabet, which is way harder, but it's, it's still feasible. So I want to hear a few stories from your book. Uh, one is about, and I'm, uh, the pronunciation of the name, Tuone uh, Udaina, the last living speaker of Dalmatian. You could correct the name, but tell us about the Dalmatian language and about this uh, last living speaker. Which that, um, that he spoke anymore, so we don't know how to pronounce his name either, or ah. I don't know for sure. Um, this guy, um, let's call him Antonio. That was his first name in Italian. Um, he lived in uh, the island that's now known as Kirk uh, in Croatia. It also has an Italian name, which I have forgotten now for the moment. Um, and he lived in the late 19th century. He was, as you say, the last speaker of Dalmatian, which was never a large language. And he was a very late speaker because most other speakers had died several decades before. But he had spoken it with his parents. And then there was this... Um, Italian linguist who uh, had this bright idea of saving the language before it would um, go extinct. Um, so he started working with our friend Antonio and took notes, took a lot of notes. And the bad thing was that this Italian linguist was not very good at his job. So his notes, which are practically the only thing we have, are not all that useful. And the other bad thing was that Antonio someday... Um, literally exploded. Well, something exploded underneath him, either a landmine or something else. We didn't, we're not quite sure. And that killed both Antonio and, well, the language. Oh, wow. wow. Wait, what, a, what a dramatic conclusion. I, I can see an, <laughs> an opera about it. <laughs> That's a nice idea. <laughs> so you refute the notion that Eskimos have 100 words for snow. What are some other popular misconceptions about language? Well, I mean, this refutation of the, 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 Eskimo, or the Eskimo hoax, let's say, right. that's something that uh, a famous linguist has already uh, un um, unveiled, no, unveiled, right? Yeah. yeah. So tell us about that. Uh, tell us about the uh, true origin or, or that the Eskimos, uh, the, the hundred words for snow. Um, I, I have a feeling that it's not really Eskimos and uh, that it's fewer than a hundred words. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, apparently they prefer to be called Inuit, even though to this day, I'm not quite sure why, um, but that's the politically correct term now. And apparently they have only two or three root words for snow, but their language is uh, such that they can add um, all sorts of suffixes and all sorts of endings and all sorts of 
they can add all sorts of things that will change the meaning slightly. Um, I'm explaining this very badly, really. Um, what I do know, which is more to do with my book, because this is in Europe, um, there is a, a language in Northern Europe, a group of languages called Sami, also not known as Lapish, but again, that's not what I want to be called, uh, which actually has more words for, la- for snow than, uh, than the Inuit. Uh, they have about 20, which is not to say that this is so exceptional, because once you start counting the number of English words for snow, um, that's, they're quite numerous too. I, I don't have the list right at my fingertips now, and not being a native speaker, I don't know all those words. But so you can't say that people who live in snow and ice will probably have many words for snow and ice. They may or they may not. And if they don't, they will somehow find a way to express all these nuances and shades of meaning. So if you were going to recommend uh, one particular linguistic tourist destination in Europe, if if someone were doing a tour around Europe and and wanted to hit like the big linguistic hotspots, where where would you send them? I would send them to Italy, to Italy, because um, uh, you have all these minority languages, and there are like ten or so. You have all these dialects, which are mostly interesting once you speak Italian, I guess. And there are also in in Rome and Florence and some other places all these tremendously interesting museums. Also, I remember there is one about sign languages. I think that was in either Milan or Torino. Um, so, and there is a museum on papyrus uh, manuscripts in uh, somewhere in Sicily. So Italy has it all. I really want to go to Italy more often than I do. Well, that sounds like a, a wonderful place to spend a linguist's holiday. I would definitely uh, recommend that, yes. And it's where the word linguist, linguistics comes from, right? I mean, uh, it's from the Latin word lingua, which, uh, well, Latin comes from Italy. So <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> the circle is round. We've been talking with Gaston Doran, and you can find his book Lingo, which comes from that same root in stores right now. Gaston, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Rose and Mark. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Children's Reviews editor John Sellers talks about some flying starts in children's publishing. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is here to tell us all about some great recent debuts in KidLit. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Hello. It's always very nice to have you here. So tell us a little bit about the history of PW's flying starts. Yeah, so this is a a feature that we've been running for, I think I looked back, it seems like it may have started in 1987. So we're we're coming up on almost 30 years of flying starts. And it's 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 a feature we do uh, twice a year. Um, Once it runs in the middle of the summer and once at the end of the year. And basically we're looking back at the previous you know, sort of six months of book releases to, and, and looking at the debuts specifically to find out, you know, what are the books that really um, stood out for us and who do we want to, who do we think is really somebody to watch in the coming years? Wow, right. So this is a, a little bit different than, uh, than, than, than announcing them, the, announcing what we think are going to be great debuts. So you're looking back and evaluating. Yeah. You know, we're certainly aware when, you know, 
an anticipated book is on the horizon, but I think there's something nice about waiting to actually, mm-hmm. you know, see the books, let the reviews come in and sort of see what, you know, rises to the top after a few months. Like what are the, the books that really stuck with us and, you know, the talents who really feel like these are some really promising people. So give us a sense of um, maybe what some past flying starts focuses have been, uh, you know, who's gone on to do big things. Sure. So it, it's, it's a neat thing. We, we, you know, we're looking at the whole range of, um, authors and illustrators, both for picture books, for middle grade, for young adult. Mm. And so throughout, you know, the history of this, we have been picking from across that range and we try to keep it, you know, try to keep a nice mix of, you know, I know in the spring this past year, it was a very YA heavy list. This, this, this fall, this most recent was a, uh, more middle grade uh, authors in the mix. Um, but in terms of looking back at the list, I mean, it's really some, some major names of uh, authors and artists we've profiled at the very beginnings of their careers. We've gone on to, you know, uh, do really great things. I mean, we've got uh, Francesca Leah Block, Brian Selznick, uh, Lori Hals Anderson, John Green, uh, David Almond, Ian Falconer, Kate DiCamillo, um, J.K. Rowling, you know, who a few right. people have heard on. This may not have been the pinnacle of, you know, her career, but it was, we still like, right, still, right. I'm still glad that we were there. We helped. Yes. We definitely, we gave her a and hand every, up. In every little way, you know, every little bit helped. So, but some really major names, you know, that, you know, we've been able to, you know, when those first books came out were, you know, we we do brief uh, profiles of each author or artist, you know, just find out, you know, what brought them to children's books, you know, how did this story come to be, and you know, you know, what are they working on, what 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 why, you know, how did they land here? <laughs> right. So tell us about some of this year's or or this, um, I guess the past six months worth mm-hmm. of flying starts. Yeah. So for for fall 2015, we usually I would say pick about a half a dozen per thing. It's not a fixed number. We sort of just, you know, what are the ones that we really think these are the folks we want to talk to. I think we had five. In the spring, we have seven the fall. In the fall, um, we have two picture book creators, uh, four middle grade authors, and two YA. That doesn't add up to quite right, does it? <laughs> well, let me tell you about who we have, and we'll, we'll see what, what, what's there. Well, we're talking literature, not math. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> um, but on, so I guess starting with the YA, we have um, a book called, or an author rather, Nicola Yoon, and her her first novel is called Everything Everything. Um, I don't know if you guys want me to tell a little bit about it, but yeah, this, this one specifically is about a girl who has basically been raised in isolation. She um, is basically allergic to everything and is sort of, you know, never leaves the home and she can't be exposed to anything and sort of, you know, kind of increasingly as, you know, in her later teenage years sort of chafing at this. But when all she knows is like basically life at home with her mother, no friends, you know, really isolated kind of environment. It kind of reminds me of the boy in the plastic bubble. It's it's kind of along those lines, yeah. sort of the thinking is she really can't leave. Right. And then um, sticking with YA, there was an author, uh, Stephanie Tromley, and hers is, I would say, a sort of in the tradition of teen sleuths. It's a novel called uh, Trouble is a Friend of Mine. Mm. Very, very funny um, kind of teen detective uh, thing set in a sort of depressed upstate town where um, this new to, new to town girl and a new friend she's made are sort of getting in over their heads in some local mysteries. A lot of fun. Um, and she is actually uh, living in Hong Kong right now. I interviewed her for actually for the, for the, um, right. for this piece. And we have another author, um, uh, author illustrator really uh, named Guo Jing, uh, who was also we had to speak to from China this year. She's born and raised in China and she, uh, her, she debuted with a picture book called The Only Child. It's, it's so long. I think it's 80 pages, maybe longer. And it's essentially a, uh, a wordless graphic novel, but you know, sort mm. of categorized as a picture book. And it's a, sort of a very dreamy uh, kind of dreamscape of this, this girl sort of leaving her home and sort of wandering out into a very magical environment. But it's inspired by uh, China's uh, one-child policy and the sort of loneliness 
of uh, growing up when you don't have any siblings and sort of having to make your own friends and own magic. Mm, so right. it sounds it sounds like it has the same kind of vibe as Sean Tan's The Arrival. I could I, I could definitely see a and comparison I'm sure to that. lots of people have been drawing that connection. Yeah, certainly that same sort of haunting black and white artwork and sort of you know an, uh, a wordless storyline that lets you sort of try to make your own decisions about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that maybe was our only picture book uh, this time around. So what about on the middle grade side? Yeah, so there's um, four middle grade uh, authors uh, this time we, we highlighted, um, the first of which is Nicholas Gannon. And uh, uh, like Guo Jing, who I just spoke about, you know, he's also a very talented artist, and he has these really beautiful detailed illustrations throughout his middle grade adventure, which is called uh, The Doldrums. Mm-hmm. Um, also for middle grade, we have Alex Gino's George. That's a book that got a lot of attention uh, this past year. Um, the author is transgender, and the book is about... Um, a child who is realizing that even though she sees herself as a girl, the, the world does not see her as such. The world sees her as a boy named George and sort of trying to figure out how to negotiate that. Wow. Um, and th- that is a rare, rare enough topic for children's books in general, but for middle grade, especially it really was not, mm-hmm. you know, not something you see very often. And so that book made a big, uh, really a big splash this year. So back on the adventure side of things, there was a book called the Blackthorn key by Kevin Sands. Um, that's sort of a historical adventure, I guess, revolving around the world of, Alchemy and Apothecary is a very exciting kind of middle grade classic mm-hmm. adventure kind of story. A lot of fun. And then back, if I can shift back to the present day, the last one is a book called The Thing About Jellyfish by Allie Benjamin, by, which is about a girl who has a very scientific outlook on life. And she is trying to basically comprehend the seemingly inexplicable death of her best friend. And she sort of decides that maybe the, there are these you know, minuscule jellyfish that are responsible for deaths. And it must be that her, her friend must have been stung by one and she needs to set out to prove it. Cause it couldn't have been that her friend drowned because her friend is such a good mm. swimmer. And so she just sort of is trying to use her scientific knowledge and interest to sort of make sense of something she can't make sense of. Right. Oh, great. So this sounds like a really powerful collection of books. Yeah, I think so. A lot of really interesting topics. Um, you know, uh, Certainly plenty of things that, that contemporary t- uh, kids can relate to directly, even if, you know, right. situations aren't the same. There's a lot of very powerful emotions, um, but also some adventures and some some sort of heightened, uh, you know, twists on, on world or, you know, adventures, you know, that set, set in the past and that sort of thing. So um, we, we always try to have a nice range of things. And what, what's nice about this feature is that we're not it's really not an apples to apples kind of thing. We can really just right. look at the whole spectrum of all types of stories that are being told for all ages and really see you know, what, what jumps out, um, you know, back in the spring, I feel like three of the entries really involved YA titles that were like the character sexuality was really at the forefront. And that was just a coincidence. And, you know, we don't feel obligated that, you know, we need to spread it out or we, this Mm -hmm. is too much. We have to, you know, we we sort of like let the best things rise up and sometimes there'll be a little theme and sometimes not, but it's a little snapshot of, of given season and what we think is really, uh, promising oh it sounds wonderful john so we should keep an eye out for these on the award list next year is what you're saying yeah it'd be interesting to see what yeah. happens with the ala awards uh right. early in the new year and uh you know i think with with all of these flying starts picks one of the things we always think about is just like what are the books that you know even if, if even if it's not part of a series what are we just what, what can we not wait to see what you know comes next from this author or artist you know where are they going to direct their talents right. next Right. That's always such an exciting thing to look at with a debut author is to try and picture their career sort of stretching out ahead of them and think of what they might do next. Mm-hmm. So um, what other what are your other criteria for this? Is it just um, kind of gut feeling? It gives you, I mean, and obviously it being a debut, of, and it's it's a first book of any kind, I assume. Um, 
Typically, yeah. I mean, we've had some, uh, there have been a few, like I know in past seasons, there have been, let's say, an artist who maybe had done a few indie comics or something, but right. this is their first, you know, officially published children's book and things like that. You know, in general, we try to limit it to, you know, a real debut, but some of these people have backgrounds in screenwriting, maybe they, you know, things like that. But in terms of a first officially published children's book, then that's the sort of debut. Have you had uh, adult authors who have turned to children's book that you've highlighted here? We don't do that for this feature. Um, if somebody is, certainly there's no shortage of adult authors, um, you know, making the jump to, to right. children's in middle, middle grade and YA right. and vice versa right. um, with uh you know, YA authors going adult, but we usually avoid that. We think there's enough, there's enough, there's so much wonderful yeah. books to choose from that we don't usually need to. If somebody has an established career as an adult writer, we, we probably would right. uh, exactly. sidestep them from a future like this. Sure. Right. Well, so, you know, these are really some great fresh new faces and it's interesting also watching the demographics of the authors um, in, in the context of recent discussions about diversity. Mm -hmm. You mentioned their authors overseas, um, non-white authors, a transgender author. It's just really nice to, yeah. to see that and to, yeah, see, I, and to see publishers taking a chance on those authors and their books. I think so too, but I think this is easily... Um, and without any sort of planning, I think this ended up being one, probably one of our more diverse uh, uh, roundups in, in recent Flying Start history. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about it. And uh, and that's going to appear in Monday's issue, or it's already up? It is out on uh, newsstands, or in your, hopefully in, in your, uh, <laughs> your mailbox. Already in, on your desk. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And on our website. Yes, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much, John. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, John. And that's it for today's show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. This is our last episode for 2015, and it concludes our third year on the air. Thanks so much to all our listeners for joining us every week. We're on vacation for the next two weeks, but we'll be rebroadcasting some of our favorite interviews from the archives, so stay tuned for those. And we'll be back in January with more great author interviews and juicy insider info about best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 